the awakening of our soul. Um, it's what is happening to, I, I believe it would be true to say, everybody that's here this morning, um, or wherever you are being here, um, there's an awakening going on. And that awakening is spreading throughout the entire world. And I want to speak very simply um, that is uh, no great new revelations, but I believe it is, how can I put it, that there is at least somebody there somewhere in the audience who needs what I'm going to say. And I think a number of us need it to understand what is going on. And so my text, if you want it, um, it's in Luke 15. Yes, I know we're back in Luke 15, but um, you haven't heard this one before. Um, at the end of the story of the lost sheep, which is in verse 6, and it says, Calls together his neighbors, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then verse 7, and that's the one I concentrate on, I tell you, that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then it's the same in verse 10. After the coin was found by the woman, he says, in the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, what is that talking about? It's probably amazing, to me anyway, that I've been preaching on this chapter for the last, what, 60 years, and I've never, never spoken on those two verses. Uh, so just for that reason alone, somebody should say something, uh, and I, that's what we're going to do. What does it mean? And notice it's repeated twice and repeated very close to each other. And that always is significant. The Bible never wastes words. And so when something is repeated, then that's reason enough to look again. But when it is within two or three verses of each repeat, then it really, it's something is being said here. And notice he says, I tell you that in the same way, the same way, the same way, that is, he's been talking about the sheep being lost and found. Now he says, in the same way. That is, this parable has got something to do with what I'm talking about here, that when one sinner repents, um, there's joy in heaven in the same way. And he says it again in verse 10, in the same way. That is what is happening with the woman and the coin is to be seen as an exact parallel as to what happens when a sinner um, repents. And in all these verses, if you go through Luke 15 looking for the word joy or rejoice, that is the center of it. And so he is saying in the same way that the shepherd rejoiced when he found the sheep, goes home, and then again, it says, called together his neighbors and said, rejoice, same as the woman. 
I found the coin, rejoice, same as the father in the latter parable, that when he finds his son in his arms, he says it's time for rejoice, celebration. And so that would be the first thing in the same way. So he is saying that these parables that he's telling are going to inevitably lead us to joy, a supreme happiness. And notice it was maybe the only parables that Jesus deliberately spoke to two classes of people at the same time. Uh, He spoke in answer to the complaining of the Pharisees. That was the real reason he gave the parables. The, The Pharisees were complaining that he was sitting in a covenant sense with tax collectors, the absolute scum of the earth, uh, the absolute uh, polar opposite to the Pharisee, the most irreligious over against the most religious. And so he tells these parables to the Pharisees to explain to them what's going on at the table where he sits. And of course, then uh, as a side issue, but very powerfully, he's talking to the tax collectors in explaining to them what he's doing in terms of the Pharisees. And so he is saying to both, both of them, I can never look at these parables simply given to tax collectors because they weren't. They were given to Pharisees in order to produce in the Pharisees a radical change of mind. And he says, if you hear what these stories are really saying, if you, you have enlightenment concerning these stories, they are going to bring you to repentance and they are going to bring about in you an unearthly joy. Underscore what I said, unearthly joy, because joy has little to do with this world. Because essentially, the definition of joy, I said it a moment ago, supreme happiness would be a good start to discuss what is joy, but human happiness depends on happenings. That's where the word comes from. When happenings are to my liking, then we call that feeling happiness. But of course, when they're not to my liking, then I've lost my happiness, and I've got another word called unhappy to describe it. Well, when I come to joy, I have to begin by saying it's a supreme happiness, but in the same breath say there is no happening that has caused it to become. I have a supreme happiness, but strangely there is no happening that makes it be. And therefore, that being the case, there is nothing, no happening that can happen to me that will collapse this. It, it Joy. It, now we're getting into the strangeness of this word. <clears throat> you see, there's no such word in the Bible as unjoy. Unhappy, yes, because it depends on happenings. But it's no unjoy because it doesn't depend on anything. It depends upon a relationship with God. Joy is rooted in God. And therefore, it is untouchable by the changing situations of our human life. 
<coughs> now, specifically in these stories, it speaks of celebration. Um, each parable uses the same words, more or less, rejoice with me. And the finale of them is the great um, celebration uh, because the younger son has come home and has been found by the father. And he's escorted, that's how it ends, that parable. It ends with them being escorted to the great celebration. And the last parable, which is about the older brother, um, his anger, the whole parable is about, he's angry at joy. Um, he, he's come across his father and son celebrating with this joy that he knows absolutely nothing about. And so even the negative here is, is speaking about joy in a negative sense. Thank you. I now have happiness. Thank you. Um, it speaks of celebration specifically because a goal has been achieved. And that goal is I have found my sheep. I have found my coin. And the son is now celebrated and the father said, it's because my son was lost and we found him. He was dead and he's come to life. So something has happened and that something has connected everybody in the story into this joy, this unearthly happiness, which is nothing more than that which emerges out of the heart of God, this joy. And so he is saying, if you hear what these parables are saying, you are going to be drawn into the joy because it's a joy that is reflected in God himself. When, when one person gets a hold of what I'm saying here, the joy is in God. And so you're going to begin to live a life that is under the authority of joy. That, that's another message, I guess. Where, but, but once you've lost joy, then you've forgotten this connection. This, this union with God that is described in the parables will inevitably produce. You won't have to go looking for it. It, it inevitably produces this joy. And it's very personal. Did you notice there's only one sheep that gets lost, only one coin that gets lost, there's only one son that gets lost, and then there's another one son who thinks he's not lost. But um, did you notice one, 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 one? A and then he says there is more joy in heaven over one that repents. That's, that's fascinating. And of course, it doesn't really fit because if you know anything about sheep, one never gets lost. Um, the whole jolly flock. Um, one starts it, but everyone else follows. So the, a sheep is never really alone in being lost. It, it's just one mass of stupid sheep all lost. A and if I understand the, the parable of the coin, it was not something you put in your pocket. It was on a string. It, it was... And that's another story in itself. But um, if that be the case, then if the string breaks, you lose everything that's on the string, not just one. So, and of course, the one son 
really, yes, I know, but both of them, if you read the story carefully, they were two sons in cahoots. They both wanted the old man's money. And so, you get it. He's saying here, one, one, one. That is, he never deals with us en masse. We are ne to God, we are not a social security number. We're, we're not just a blur of people. Each one has this unearthly joy that now has the authority over their life. Joy. It was a, a joy that was because union had been restored. That was the whole point. Why was the shepherd in a state of joy? Because I found my sheep, which was lost. The woman, I found my coin. That They, they were parted. Now a union has been achieved. We, we've, the goal has happened, that we've found that which was lost. And now the union is restored. You could say that it is the cancellation of a separation that had taken place. You could say it was love's fulfillment that now that which is beloved has been found and restored to the lover. Hold that in mind. Joy, that's the whole point of these stories all the way through. Something that was foreign to both. That's interesting because he was speaking to Pharisees. They knew absolutely nothing of joy because religion is incapable, and I underscore that word, incapable of producing joy. And in fact, religion is incapable of happiness because all of its rules and regulations are set for a serious misery. And um, so they're incapable of happiness, let alone joy. And so he is presenting to them something that is unknown to them but at the same time the tax collectors were themselves incapable of joy they are the most lonely the most miserable people in any city where you found them because that they had searched for life and meaning in betraying their own soul in betraying their own people and finding something in money that they've skimmed off the top all three produce only dead ends and no joy. And, and so this is very fascinating to me that Jesus is addressing two classes of people at opposite ends of the spectrum, and yet it's the same message, that when joy... That's interesting, isn't it? I could stay here. Um, but, but it is. You think about it. The authority of joy. Where there is joy, there you have been restored to union. There there is no separation. Where there is no joy, then I don't care what else you're doing, you can be assured you've missed it. Because joy is the authority that governs whether we are experiencing awake to what's going on. Okay. Put that on hold for a minute because the object of this joy that he's speaking about, he calls it, it's not very often the word arises in the mouth of Jesus. I think he used it because of the Pharisees. It was their favorite word, sinners. And um, he uses it when he speaks to the Pharisees. It's interesting. When they said, he, he said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Um, he was talking to Pharisees. 
here he's talking to Pharisees. I think it was because that's how the Pharisee looked at the world. They were sinners. I am righteous. And, and so that was their world. And it was the culture in which they lived. And Jesus adopts that word. Though he doesn't use it very often. His favorite word is lost. And so he's describing the lost. He puts the two words together because lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. But then when he's really giving the knockout punch to the Pharisees, he uses the word sinner. Uh, that the, the, the object to this joy are sinners. But of course, it's the parables that redefine the word sinner. That's the point. Um, it, it's interesting that many, many, many um, w within our evangelical world have never defined the word sin. Um, came up, Andrew and I were talking about it, um, some chap on, on the web somewhere what was um, enraged with us and, um, and at, at how we define sin and 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 the response was the poor chap said, "Well, sin. What does sin mean? Sin. Sin means sin." Uh, he had no idea what sin meant. Um, well, think about it. It's passed on to us. It's in no other part of English language. You, you'll never get the word sin used in in Washington. <laughs> um, uh, seriously, it's it's an ancient. It's an archaic word that we Christians use because it's in the Bible translated in archaic times and never been retranslated to bring it up to date to say what it is. What is sin? When Jesus said, sinners, what did he mean? Well, he's told us in the parables what he means by sin. And the first thing that hits me, and I want you to hear this, sin is not to do with behavior. That's ah, shocking. In fact, that blows the platform out from under most. That we, I was raised with it, you were raised with it, I'm sure. That sin is something you do or don't do. Um, and it's based in the Ten Commandments that you, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And here Jesus comes and he very obviously, and, and don't bother to email me on this, um, <laughs> But Jesus is not uh, at all really talking about people's behavior. It, 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 the lost in this parable it defines the meaning of sin, and it's not to do with behavior. The behavior is incidental. So the sheep left the flock and wandered after patches of grass and found its... That's not even mentioned there. It's just it was lost. How it got lost is neither here nor there. It's not, and, and it's in the wilderness. And so, yes, that produces many ideas of starvation and danger. But it's not mentioned. The only thing that is mentioned there is that the sheep has been separated from the owner. And that's it. It's sin is not doing something wrong it goes back prior to the doing something's happened and that is a broken relationship not broken commands 
That comes afterward. Oh, yes, they're there, but it comes afterward. What has happened is a broken relationship. And because of the broken relationship, then you end up doing a whole bunch of daft things. But that's not what sin is. Sin is prior to the doing. Sin is a broken relationship. Or I say it again, lost from the owner. He's separated from the owner, which again now, that, that's um, a massive thing. And it, it's, I'm not making this up. Jesus puts in the mouth of the shepherd, um, he says, I have lost my, my sheep. I have found my, my, my sheep. And the, the woman is my coin. These are owners that Jesus is describing. The seekers are owners that are going to find that which belongs to them. That, that's very upsetting um, to religion because they don't see that God owns bad people. Uh, they're, they're, you know, separated. They're, they're not mine. To them, the only parable they could come up with is that the, a shepherd goes to hunt wild sheep. He's got no idea of the shepherd going for my sheep, a relationship a relationship that's been interrupted, a relationship that now is a broken relationship because the sheep is not where it should be with the shepherd. The coin is no longer with the woman where it's supposed to be, but it's still my coin, still, still as valuable. It doesn't matter. You can bury a coin in mud and it will cry out to you through the mud, I'm still worth what I was when I was put under the mud. You know, you can take a hundred dollar bill and you can throw it in the Guadalupe. It's still a hundred dollar bill. Maybe it's lost to you, maybe separated and it's out of circulation and it's not in any way of any use to anybody, but it is still worth. It still has an owner. It's amazing when you think about it that Jesus is describing in these parables sin as a relationship to an owner whose precious possession, precious possession has gone missing. And gone missing because especially with, with the last set of parables of the, the sons, uh, it comes out strongly because of a mental condition, a mental condition. And if that doesn't shock you, well, good. Um, but for some people, that is so shocking, they flee from it. Because we have been taught for most of our life that sin is something quite else. But to say it's a mental condition, a mental condition that guides, that controls the entire person. And that is a mental darkness, a darkness in which you, you really do not know what you're doing. It's a, I've, I've called it elsewhere, profound darkness, which produces an absolute blindness. A blindness, and again I've said this before, but it's so important. It's, it's such a profound darkness, you can't see your hand in front of you. But it's an absolute darkness that is a blindness. And it is not, 
Actually, the word blind in this is an unfortunate word because when we think of blind, physical blindness, um, that doesn't mean that the person cannot really see. Um, many times, if you've been around persons physically blind, they are more aware of the world that we live in than we are, many times. They use all their senses and make connection with this world. And so they know that beyond their blindness, there is a world they cannot see. Now, so see, that's what I mean. The blindness I'm talking about is an absolute. It doesn't know that. This blindness doesn't know that there's a world beyond their darkness. This darkness, this world that I'm talking about is so profound. It is so absolute that the person's concern do not realize the world that is beyond the edge of their darkness. They don't know there's an edge to their darkness. They believe this is, this is life. And so the sheep, uh, why does it keep going? Because that's the lostness of a sheep. It simply keeps going. And um, in its going on the wrong track, why does it do it? Well, of course, it's a sheep, and so I can't give it any personality. But uh, a sheep goes because it doesn't realize, that's the best I can do with a sheep, it doesn't realize that this uh, thing that it's got itself into is not where it's supposed to be. It can settle into its lostness, and keep getting loster because it doesn't realize that I've left something behind me. But maybe, of course, the best is the, the son in the last parable. And the son in the last parable who, who begins the parable by saying to his father, I wish you were dead, I want your money. He has no, and it's very obvious, both of the sons in those last two parables have no comprehension, absolutely no comprehension of their father's love. None whatsoever. And the younger son really believes he is escaping some sort of imprisonment in order to find life. And he really believes right up until the very end that this is where life is. And it's amazing that he would actually get to the point, not only of looking after pigs and living with the pigs, but wanting now to eat with the pigs before he wakes up to realize, what am I doing here? Um, now that's darkness, profound darkness. And, and so in Ephesians and, and chapter 4, it says this, just in case anybody wants to challenge it. Um, he says that we believers no longer walk as the Gentiles, the Gentiles being the overall expression to mean those who do not understand the love of God, just as the Gentiles also walk. How do they walk? In the futility of their mind. Could somebody please read the Bible? In the futility of their mind, it's not speaking about some innate nature. It is mind where I think and make decisions. That's where the futility is. And the word futility means that you've so lost your way that your life now is walking around in meaningless circles. That's the exact meaning of the word. 
that I, I've come to the point where I can't really tell you why I'm here. I can't tell you where I'm going. And, and I don't know what it means to be alive, but I'm just doing. And I'm going around. And futility is a big word. So then there's a comma after that. The futility of their mind, comma. So those same people he's talking about, why, why are they futile? Why, why are they in the futility of their mind? Because they're being darkened in their understanding. Again, right in the, that's where understanding. So whatever they understand is an understanding that has been birthed in intense darkness. They've excluded from the life of God. Inside that darkness, they have no concept of a union with God. They live in a world that would say to them they're excluded. And why would they come up with that? Why would they think they're excluded? Because of the ignorance that is in them. It's not some pulsating nature of evil that's in them. It is they're so ignorant of truth because they're in the darkness which produces futility of life. Because of the hardness of their heart, so the truth can't get through. And they, okay, in the light of all that, have become callous. That is, it's so such a thick door. You're, you're hard. I mean, it's, it's one thing to have hard skin. It's another to have callous skin. You know the difference, do you? Um, when, when you got calluses, you got calluses, you can't even feel when they put a needle there. You know, it's not just hard, it's callous. And so they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Yeah, now we're getting to behavior. But where did the behavior come from? Where did this behavior, which he begins by calling it futile behavior, where's it come from? Your mind, darkened in the mind, confused in your understanding because of ignorance that is in you. Do, do you get it? And that's what I'm seeing in these parables. The, the, um, the sheep is ignorant in darkness. As I say, it's hard. He's just given the illustration there. But when it comes to the sun, a human being, then you see it all the clearer. They're pursuing a path that makes absolute sense to them at the time. The son does not sit down and say, I am going to sin today, and I'm going to screw my father over. No, he believes this is the normal, the most sensible path to take. Why the rage of the elder brother? Because to him, what he believes is absolute truth. Path that makes sense but it makes sense in the darkness because I can't see where I'm going, nor can I see any absolute beyond my own thoughts. So I don't know. I, I, I think this is the right word. Then it gets beyond things. I know it's the right way. And it becomes an inner compulsion to do that and produce some sort of meaning and purpose and identity. Human beings cannot live in a vacuum. You cannot, you're incapable of doing it. If you don't understand what's happening, you'll make a meaning to it. 
It must make a meaning. You cannot, as a human being, we can't just dismiss it and say, well, it, I don't know. Um, we, we are compelled to make a meaning. There's a lot of theology in many churches that is based on that. A God they can't understand, they immediately make a meaning to that God that's crazy. But they have to have a meaning. In my darkness, I have to make a meaning. Why am I here? What's the purpose? I've got to find out. I've got to, even though I'm in such darkness, I'm incapable of finding out. Do, does that make sense? See, the darkness is primarily concerning the character of God. And that's something many people never even think of. When they think of darkness, they think of the, the behavior of, of the darkness. Well, where does it come from? The behavior of the darkness comes from being blind and in the dark to who God really is. And you can see it all the way back in, in Genesis, right at the very beginning. As soon as mankind, in, in our first parents, believed the lie, which was the darkness, immediately they're afraid of God. Now, wh why would that be? As a, you've got to answer that question. Why? why? Within a matter of minutes, minutes prior to this, he was their creator, their friend, their father, their genesis. I mean, that's the beginnings of everything, their parent. And now suddenly at the darkness, immediately after that, they're afraid of God because they couldn't live even in that moment without a meaning that they've lost sight of the real God, so they have to make one up. And so they make up a God. They invent a God that fits how they feel. And they feel guilty. So therefore, they invent a God that fits that, who is also angry with them. That fits my guilt. And also, who will punish me. That sure, I feel I should be punished. And here we have, religion has begun. And it is... But then, of course, as soon as I'm blind to who God is, I'm blind to who I am. Because my identity came from knowing who God says I am, who I am in relation to him. And then I'm blind to what the meaning of life is because he is the one from whom life flows. You see, the, the Greek word for sinner describes one who has lost their inheritance or they've lost the form, the design, or the blueprint that they were created to live by. So my inheritance is to be the person God made me to be. And if I've lost that blueprint... I've lost it. So now I don't know who I was supposed to be. So along with that, I've lost my inheritance. I've lost my design. Therefore, I'm without form. I'm, I'm, I don't see myself with form and uh, purpose. I, I see myself as a sort of blob of living stuff. And I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what it's about. And so at my deepest self, I'm bankrupt even though out here I've got dollars in my hand, but in my true self, I'm bankrupt. 
And even though I've got a life that has some sort of form to the outsider, to my deepest self, I'm distorted. I'm out of whack. I'm confused. I don't know. Futile is that word again. Don't even know. I'm out of tune with the very harmony of, of God's music. We talked about it the other week. It's like dementia. And the more I think about that, the more it's true that I can look at God and I don't know who he is. Who are you? Who are you? And, and um, I look at myself and I don't know who I, I am. And I look at you and I'm not sure about you either. I, I live in this terrifying, it is, I can't imagine it, a, a terrifying world in which I don't know who you are and I don't know who I am. And so I don't know, we make up in that world some reality terrifying it is terrifying and actually if i had another hour we could um go to isaiah chapter one but you should go there um especially those of you that are not familiar with the prophets you go to isaiah one and his cry is what is going on here he said even a cow knows the one who brings it the food you know, if you go out there in the Jeep and you've got the, the hay and stuff with you, they'll all cluster. They'll run. He, even, and he said, a donkey knows his master. Even a horse knows the one who looks after it. But you, of all people, you, he said, do not know your God. You do not know the God who created you and is caring for you and it's that's what it is it's this i don't know i'm confused i i have lost my way in this world it's dementia now at the heart of this these stories according to these little verses that give you the key to it is this word repentance which and I'm not going to go into it. I think everybody, if you've been around for the last few weeks even, you'll know that is the worst translation of the Greek word that could ever spill out of the mouth of religion. Um, so we never use that term repentance. Um, that's the English translation of a Greek word metanoia. And that is a beautiful word. It's an exciting word. It's a supernatural word. Metanoia means a radical change of mind to the point where I would say it's an exchange of mind. See, in every one of these parables, there is that radical change of mind, even though the first two are dealing with impersonal objects. But it's there, the sheep that is now committed I mean, whatever mind a sheep has, it was committed to continue its pathway in the wilderness, committed to it. The coin, which of course, totally outside of this discussion, but as far as this goes, um, the coin in, in its destiny, the coin in its um, present moment was hidden away in the dust and dirt under a chair somewhere. It was gone. And in, in both of those cases, you have the 
outside hand that comes in, the outside voice that calls the sheep. I say outside. In, in both cases, the outside had become inside because the shepherd was not outside the sheep's world. He had come into the wilderness. The hand of the woman that groped in the dirt and the darkness comes from the outside, but inside where the coin was. And in both cases, there is an exchange of mind because the lost now discards its own mind and assumes the mind of the seeker. Do you get that? There, there is a sense, you can use it both ways actually, but, but to become awakened to the wonder of God's love, you have to lose your mind. And there's an exchange, and you now receive the mind of Christ. And, yeah, I know that kind of sounds funny to our ears, but anybody who understands a word I'm talking about, you are blessed people, you've lost your mind. Um, because the mind that you had was futile, darkened, without understanding, ignorant. We've lost it. And we lost it by the approach of the seeker. And the seeker now takes over in those first two parables. And the sheep now receives, in fact, the mind of the shepherd. Not that he has much to do with it. But he now is on the shepherd's shoulders around his neck and he is now being transported with the mind of the shepherd back to reality, to, to the sheepfold. Similarly, the, the coin has been transported by and, and the, it's been transported in the mind of the woman. The woman always had an intention. I will find the coin and put it back where it belongs. That's her mind, yes, and so the, the coin now is in the mind of the woman. But of course, when you come to the prodigal son, that is very positive. You can follow that through as he comes home and he is expressing his own mind. This is the mind of the darkness. This is the mind of the blindness evangelicals have taken that and polished it up and called it the sinner's prayer but it's not in the scripture the scripture is he's saying something that the father does not want even want to discuss it's the mind of the flesh it's the mind of futility i have sinned against heaven and in your sight i am no longer worthy to be called your son i am the pit of unworthiness you don't even want to know me anymore I'll take a job of, you know, washing out the toilets. Give anything. Let me be. Huh. And the father, there's many things. There's nothing to discuss. If, if you meet a person with dementia, what they're talking about cannot be discussed, actually, in, in logical conversation. And that is how he treats what has become known as the sinner's prayer. It wasn't the sinner's prayer. It was the vomiting out of the mind of the flesh. This is where the kid lived. 
that, that he's lost all relationship to his father. He doesn't even know that he's a son anymore. He is at sea, confused. Yeah. And, and, and so he exchanges it for the mind of the father. In that it ends with together they went into the feast. He's now thinking in the same way as the father. Um, and it includes the faith of the seeker. You know, <laughs> tell the sheep you've got to have faith. That, that's ridiculous. Stupid, you know. The, but back to the sun where we can talk more about it. The... the that's that mind of the son i'm no longer worthy to be called your son i've sinned myself out of existence well you can't you can't say to that person that you've got to have faith faith in what he can do you say he cannot see beyond that load of nonsense he's spewing out he can't see beyond that that's truth to him and so you can't say have faith it's when he submitted to the Father, surrendered to the Father, accepted the embrace of the Father, received the kisses of the Father, then he is entering into the mind of the Father and into the faith of the Father, the Father who knows this is his Son and the Father who sees him restored. He, he's, and so... Um, it is again you see the goodness of god leads us to metanoia that that when we are in the embrace of god when we realize we're owned by him and he is now in the process of loving us that's when there's that i say mysterious because i can't explain it logically that you suddenly or not always suddenly because some of you have been here now for weeks and it's just now happening you, you are now beginning to get it Yes, that's wonderful. That's, uh, and don't be put off by people who say, when were you saved? I'm not sure. I, w I know this much. I was saved when Jesus rose from the dead. But how the Holy Spirit brought that to me. He was working in my life long before I knew there was a Holy Spirit. Working in my life when I had already said no to Jesus. But neither Jesus, Holy Spirit, or the Father ever put off by our silliness. And, and so we... we so I, I don't know. It's it. But there was a time in your life when you think you, it was probably before that, but it, it began to work. And that this mind change began to take place until 1 Corinthians 2 says, Now eye has not seen nor ear heard has never entered into the heart of man. The things God has prepared for those who love him, but, but, but he has now revealed it to us by his spirit, for we have the mind of Christ. Yes, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah. And of course, it was a radical change uh, then as to the nature of sin. I'm going back to what I said before. It's not just the breaking of rules, not just behavior. And righteousness, yoy, we should take an hour on that, shouldn't we? Righteousness is not about keeping the rules or breaking them. Um, righteousness is a word that essentially means face-to-face. -face. Righteousness is, by definition, a relational word. It, it is when two persons relate, and they see 
each other in each other and relational. So you could say, that you can't say it actually, but I'm going to say it, that the sheep was righteous when it was around the neck of the shepherd and its face was up against his face. Now, it was a righteous sheep. You wouldn't use that term, but I am. Um, do you get the point? It isn't because, well, now the sheep has stopped being a bad sheep. No, I'm not sure it was. <laughs> if you take him off the shoulder, it would be as stupid as ever. But do you, do you understand? Righteousness is not to do with behavior, primarily. Righteousness is to do with a relationship, face-to-face -face relationship. Um, and, and in that relationship of joy, that is a righteous. Righteous means walking in the same steps as. So in Old English, before we came over here and taught you English, um, it was Old English. Righteousness was right-wiseness. It, it meant like clockwise. You are walking together. Um, radical change of mind then as to the nature of sin. It's not breaking rules. It is where you stand in a relationship. And in that relationship, that's going to change your behavior. That's the light that blasts the darkness. But it begins with relationship. And that relationship that the lost didn't have, at least from their side, they couldn't mend it. That, that's the point. You can't mend it. Feel that you can't mend it. Why? Because they weren't even aware that they'd broken a relationship. You, you understand? M many people know they've done some bad things, but until you have come into the light of Jesus, you don't realize that it begins in a broken relationship. You don't realize that. You just think it's a bunch of bad things, but it isn't. So how can you mend something you don't know needs mending? It could only, get this, it could only be mended by the love of the seeker. It was because the seeker came into the world of the sheep that the sheep's relationship was mended. It was because the father refused to discuss the logic of the person in dementia, instead puts his arms around the boy and says, this son of mine, you are my son. And because of that, put the best or number one robe on him and, and so on. And let us go and celebrate and let us rejoice for this, my son, was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. When the father did that, the kid just stood there like a blob uh, and, and he's getting kissed all over and he's being bear hugged and, and it, it dawns on him somewhere in there because he goes together with the father in step with the father. Uh, that's it's a marvelous thing, isn't it? Th this gospel is not about you. Boy, if you could get that. It's not about you. It's not about you being good or bad. It's not about you trying your best or not trying. This is about the incredible love of God who came to us, literally came to us. God became us in Jesus. And now the Holy Spirit of one being with the Father and the Son comes 
and loves us and puts his arms around us and kisses us. Now that's, and we're mended. We're mended by nothing you do. It's by surrendering to the Holy Spirit and just accepting that I'm loved and accepting that I'm wanted and I have value and worth because he set his love upon me. Of course, that exposes religion right there as a total fraud because the whole message of religion is change your behavior. And so it's a total fraud. Oh, Cheryl and I were talking this morning about you have made the word of God to no effect. He said that to the religious. You've made the word of God to no effect. You've made it an absolutely inoperable thing. And the word of God, of course, was not the Bible. The word of God is Christ himself. And, and you, you've done that by depending on the traditions of men. You can't, you can't believe because you're as lost as the tax collectors. It's just you've chosen a different pathway in the wilderness, that's all. And you're just as lost. And, and you, you, do, you don't even know you're lost. And so you, you've built this world around the traditions of men and what is logical to the human mind. And in so doing, you've canceled out the love of God in Christ. At least from your side, not from his. But and so, so they it reveals to us the love of God with unlimited passion. The shepherd goes; he will seek the sheep until he find it. There's no exit. He said, "I, I won't be back unless I got the sheep." The woman turns the whole house out onto the lawn in order to find the coin. The father runs, makes a fool of himself before the village. Nothing will stop him to put his arms around that boy to the point where shepherd joins the sheep in the wilderness, where the woman joined the coin in the dirt, to the point where the father puts his arms around a kid that said, number one, I'm not your son. And number two, he stunk like a pig, which to a Jew was, that was the end of the road. You, you've, you're finished. The gospel is, the, if you can get this, the gospel is the news, the announcement. That means I'm, you don't have to try to get this to happen. It's the announcement it's happened. The gospel is the news that God is not outside us. He is not up. He is not in any way, shape, or form remote. He has come in the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. He has come inside our darkness. And that's where he's happy, joyous to live. The sheep was joined in the wilderness by a shepherd who in the middle of the wilderness, in the middle of where the sheep was, rejoiced 
that he had found the sheep. He didn't wait till he got him home and cleaned him up and said, now you're presentable. As the sheep that was a tangled mess of fur, you, you tried going in the wilderness with a sheep coat and not getting it all tangled. And the cuts and the bruises and the starvation and the thirst that the sheep was in, it was a mess. The shepherd grabbed hold of that sheep and it says he rejoiced. The joy began inside the darkness, inside the wilderness. You do, okay, put it this way. (laughs) He is not seeking you anymore because he found you. He's already in you now. And you are not called to seek him. How can you seek him who's already with you? The gospel is that your eyes are open to see that he's not outside. He's inside right now. And you look at your behavior and like a Pharisee, you say, but look at how I live. I know how you live. And he's in the middle of it. He's up to his earlobes with you in it. And he grabs a hold of you now in it and rejoices and said, I found you. Found you. That's the gospel. Okay, let me say this. It it, it also reveals that you are not a sinner by nature. <laughs> and I know to some of you that won't mean anything, but to some of you it will mean the collapse of your entire theology. Everything was built on that. You're born a sinner. I, I mean, look, I, I'm, I've been around in this religious business for 70 years now, and I've heard it all. And I've been, I've been in the most ungodly, this is where I could lose my sanctification, (laughs) to stand with pastors who look at a newborn baby and say that baby is damned in hell because it has been born, because it has a sinful nature. Yes, the most ungodly words I've ever heard have come from the mouths of Christian religion. Sin is not a nature. You know the word nature means it's innate to you. It means that that's who you are. You are, that's the word by nature. The Bible doesn't say that. I've just read it to you. It didn't say it was by nature. This story reveals... God's still your owner. You're still his sheep. What, what is it then? You are still a son, but you're blinded as to who God is your father and who you are his child. Did you get that? It's, it tells us you are not by nature a sinner. You are a son, a daughter who's blinded to your identity. And I says, hey, you're also blinded to the fact you have been found. These stories are not, they don't end with the shepherd still looking, as if I'll tell you the story so we can have some cooperation here. Um, No, he said, I found you, I found you. He's sitting there with the tax collectors and telling the Pharisees, 
I found you. Did you realize that? Not only the tax collectors. He's telling them, you're found. I've come. I've embraced you. You just don't know it. It's an awakening to realize we're not abandoned. We're not alone in the darkness. He's right there when you're unaware of him, you don't notice him, and you even would say you want nothing to do with him. I hope you realize God's bigger than that. Because I think many theologians who would see God as offended over every word we say, I'm glad I'm not your son. I mean that. Oh, very. You see, the way you understand your relationship to God is the way you will treat your family. Why is it that we don't have a massive Christian teenagers and 20s? Why, why do they all get out as fast as they can when they get to an age of ability like that? Why, why do they do that? Is it because they have seen in their family a reflection of the God that family worships, which is a God that is a pouting, miserable God that says you can't do this and you can't do that, and if you do, I'll damn you in hell. And they translate that over to their neighbors. Why, why do your neighbors not fall in love with Jesus when they look at you? Maybe you're, you're presenting. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Um, but but <laughs> it, it is true. I, I, you know, I, someone said, what do you believe? And I say, follow me around for a couple of months. You'll find out. I, I'm not interested in what you say you believe because what you believe is reflected in how you pour the coffee. It, it's how you treat your dog. It, it's how you treat your children, how you treat your wife and husband. Anyway. Got myself lost there for a minute. <laughs> but it's coming alive to the vast worth that we have. The shepherd put himself in the danger the sheep was in. That is, essentially, the shepherd said, I'll die for the sheep. That's what, if he's going into the wilderness, with all its predators and dangers, he is saying that sheep is worth my life. What does John 3.16 say? God so loved the world. What does that look like? He gave his only begotten son. So the death of Jesus is the extent. That's the definition of God's love. You are worth dying for. Jesus said, it is worth my going into the bottom of your hell to bring you out. You're worth that. You're worth it. Then he said, there's joy in heaven. I, I just refer to this quickly. Um, the Jewish people of the New Testament couldn't say or didn't want to say the word God. That's where we get all the mix-up with I am being translated Lord because they didn't want to say the name of God. And so in the New Testament period, often they would use the word heaven 
and that would really mean God, but they couldn't bring themselves to say God. That's why you read in some Gospels the kingdom of God, in others it says the kingdom of heaven. And so it says there's joy in heaven. That would simply mean that when your eyes are opened, when we have achieved our end, when the goal has been reached, when you have been brought to realize and revel in the relationship that you have, then therein is the joy of God. And the joy that you have in that, you are literally sharing in the joy of God himself. We use the term heaven very strangely these days, um, make it some sort of place out beside Venus or Mars and, you know, the place you go and there's lots of little cottages there and golden mansions. And Actually, I've heard about everything is there except Jesus. It's <laughs> Really, you, you say to people, do you want to go to heaven when you die? It's the daftest question ever heard. The, the person you ask has been spending all their life trying to get away from God as they think he is. And then you say, do you want to go to heaven when you die? Which suggests God won't be there, you see, because you've been trying to get away from him. Well, you'll finally get away from him and you'll have a little cottage and roses outside and, and you'll live there forever and ever, happy ever after. And it won't be hell, whatever that is, you know. Really, do you, have you ever analyzed what we call the gospel today? Trash, you know. No, heaven is the presence of the Holy Trinity. It's not a place where other things happen. Heaven is a biblical term which is synonymous for Father and Son and Holy Spirit in the fullness of their life and light and love. That, that's heaven. Anyway, all heaven lights up with joy when you, number one sheep, number one sheep, number one, we're all number one sheeps. And, and um, when our eyes are opened, heaven lights up. But it also says angels. And I'm going to, you know, I believe in angels. So let's get that straight. I believe in angels. I don't believe in the word. It's a gas. Well, it isn't in a translation. It is the Greek word. They, they didn't translate it. Well, you're left then with a word. I don't know what it means right? It's not English, angel. And, and so what does he mean? There again, you see, if you don't know, you've got to make it up. So what do we do? We create these things in yellow clothes and, and great eagle's wings, and they're supposed to be angels, pathetic creatures. They usually look very effeminate, and you know. Um, I don't believe in those kind of things. They're figments of religious imagination. Now, let's translate it, and the word means messenger, word-bearer. They've come with a message. Or it, there's a good reason to believe agent, which I really do like, secret agents. I mean, if the president has secret service agents, I don't see why we shouldn't have that. Um, so, yes, I do believe in messengers. I've never yet seen one in a yellow lingerie, but um, I have certainly met them in business suits. 
and I have met them in odd places, and they never announce what they are. It's afterward you realize what's happened. So I'm going to say that because I'm about to say I don't believe that's what it means here. Um, angels do not delight in your eyes being open because they don't get it anyway. Salvation was never for angels. It's nothing to do with them. They are the servants of God at a very broad level. And it says that they look in confusion on what's going on with us. So I, that doesn't... No, I think the word there is his messengers. I, I'm looking at a bunch of his messengers right now. I'm looking at you, the agents of God in your neighborhood. And when you confront somebody whose eyes have been opened, you connect immediately with the joy of the Father. You know what I... And I mean that in its most literal sense, that their eyes have been opened to their union. Their eyes have been opened to no more separation. And that for them to live is Christ. And they are the sons and the daughters of the Father. You meet someone whose eyes have just been opened to that. And there is joy in the presence of the messengers. You know, um, and actually John 15, and I'm quitting because again, I've gone over time. But in John 15, read the whole chapter and it says, Jesus told them about the vine and the branches, and I in you and you in me, in order that your joy might be full. That's where joy is, to realize that for yourself, but also you can't contain yourself when you see someone that their eyes are opening. And um, of course, for you whose eyes are being opened, you're, you too, you, you've... You've caught the joy. You've started the dance. So there we are. Um, that's what that verse means, I think. And um, I trust, for all its simplicity, I trust it has spoken to you and that person I really feel needed to hear what I was saying this morning. That you are one. You're one of the sheep. You're one of the... Uh, and it's because you've been found and Christ is already in you and the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to that reality. And those who have begun to see this over the last weeks and months to establish you in that. And to the rest, well, just get joyous that this is the way it is. Father, we give you thanks. We certainly do. We joy with your joy. We're alive with your life. Thank you for your salvation from religion. Thank you for breaking the chains that bound us once. And thank you for revealing to us your love in the face of Jesus Christ made real inside of us now through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.